You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Joshua 23, beginning in verse 1. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Turn aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight thousands since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, that they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Now, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things till he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Pray, Father, that you would uh, come and remove any hindrances from us hearing from you. I know, Father, that as I preach, I am nothing more than a, a man. And yet I know that you have chosen preaching as one of the ways in which you 
communicate your desire to us. Boggles my mind that you would use really imperfect people like myself to do this. So I ask God that you would remove pieces of me and just insert yourself into this place that we might behold the glory, and the grandeur, and the power, and the majesty, the work of your son Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. And I pray that you would root deep within us a hope for heaven that would far surpass any hope that we might have in anything on this earth. Pray this morning, Father, that you would give me the courage of a lion and the tone of a lamb. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Joshua 22, we witnessed Joshua sending the two and a half tribes back over to the west side of the river with a command. The command to uh, love and obey and clean and serve God wholeheartedly. As these tribes uh, settled in at home last week, they built an altar of remembrance. I think out of their zealous desire to obey this command and to ensure that future generations knew about their commitment to the Lord. What happened last week was that this inevitably ignited a near holy war uh, between the two and a half western tribes and the nine and a half eastern tribes, which I did not plan last week, but totally had that backwards. This week it straightened out. You can check your maps. The maps. Important part of context. Those nine and a half eastern tribes rallied under the leadership of a man named Phineas. And they did that because uh, those tribes believed that the other tribes, the, the two and a half tribes, they believed that they were committing an atrocious sin of rebellion. I just ask you for a moment, have you ever observed someone else's life and just you were so absolute certain that what they were doing was a sin? Only to find out later that it wasn't. Happened to me. In that uh, tense, conflict-filled conversation in Joshua 22, Phineas and his war council realized that the western tribes had only set the altar up as a witness and a reminder rather than an actual working altar. Uh, They realized, basically, Phineas and his crew, basically realized uh, that things were not as they seemed. So the conflict was resolved, and the war was avoided. Uh, My aim in applying the passage uh, last week to our context as Americans was to stir us up. to help us to feel, to experience something of the intensity of the conflict in that text. And then lead us to the cross and the empty tomb and leave us with the promise of heaven. So I chose uh, what I believed and still believe 
to be a very polarizing issue in our context as Americans, namely the sharp divide in our tumultuous political system. I would be a fool of a shepherd if I didn't apply the scriptures to our immediate context. Seemed very appropriate to me at the time. Still seems appropriate um, given the fact that we are in a presidential election year. And the aim of every political party and news program, and let's face it, they get more airtime than the Sunday morning pulpit, don't they? Given the fact this is a presidential election year and the aim of every political party and news program that are attached to said parties is to basically stir up their voting base, seemed appropriate. What I did not say, and what I would not say, is that that's a bad thing, necessarily. Can be. It's not a bad thing. Voting according to your conscience, as the Spirit of God leads you, it's a very good thing. I want us to think about, one of the things I did want us to, to do last week um, was, and I always want us to think about this. I want us to think about any compromise of any biblical values that may happen for you as you go to a voting booth. Uh, this is where, if you were to listen to last week, you would hear me use the lesser of two evils argument. It's intended to make you think about the compromise that may happen as you go of any biblical values that are clear in God's word. I in no way um, last week desired to bash any political leader. My intention, though, was to draw our attention to the brokenness and the sinfulness in humans on both sides of the aisle. Um, A clear theological doctrine on the sinfulness of man must compel us to do this and not ignore it. I also shared my grief, my misunderstanding, Christians today, and our tendency to whitewash some of these things. I believe we have a responsibility as Christians to speak prophetically to these things in our culture and not be stifled. Or censored. Freedom of speech is something that is very important to us. The reality that I wanted to point us to um, is to understand that our hearts can be shaped through the values and the talking points of either side of the aisle without knowing it. And either side of the aisle at times is going to hold up a Bible or at least some religious freedom to support their values. So this can and often does create untold amounts of conflict in our culture. 
I haven't been on social media since before Thanksgiving, so I don't know what all of you are posting. But it, I, social media is a good place for us to check, right? At the end of the day, my hope last week was to challenge us faithfully and courageously not to sell out our hope in the gospel of the kingdom of God for any kingdom on this earth. I said that clearly. This is why I broadened the theme at the end of the sermon. I broadened the theme of kingdom. Took it out of the kingdom of politics. Took it into other kingdoms. Um, I took it into the kingdom of family. Or the kingdom of vocation. Or the kingdom of friendship. Or the kingdom of nation. Or the kingdom of marriage. And then I think I said etc. I believe that we all feel the tension and the conflict within those paradigms, those kingdoms. You might call them institutions, right? We feel conflict in those. Experience that. I believe it can be really easy to lose sight of the gospel in the midst of the chaos and the conflict of the kingdoms of this earth. My last challenge to us, almost. My last scripted challenge to us last week was to think about the difference between a biblical worldview that can be salt and peppered with political talking points on the one hand, or a gospel-centered worldview that is saturated in the work of Christ at the cross and the empty tomb in light of the hope that we have for heaven in Christ Jesus, our true Joshua. I believe that anything less than a gospel-centered worldview, and this is more than a gospel-founded worldview, I'm arguing for a gospel-centered slash saturated worldview. I believe anything less than that, and let me pause and say, here's the reason that I say this, in case you're wondering, like, is there really a difference? Well, yeah, the Pharisees had Bibles in their hands. There's a difference. They missed the point was Jesus. So yes, sarcastically, I would argue that all day long. Anything less than that, I believe, will inevitably lead us to alienate the marginalized, the hurting, and the broken who live on the other side of the river from us, whether that is the dividing river of a sexual ethic, according to Luke 7, or a dividing river of religious belief, if you take a look at Matthew 22 or Mark Again, arguments with Pharisees and Sadducees, as well as a Sadducee or a Pharisee who really was upset that there was a woman that would even come close to Jesus because of her reputation in town. Now, I'm not saying that's what we've become. We're a church of broken people, and I thank God for that. The concern is that we would ever forget from where we came from. 
place that we got saved from, the place that God transformed us from, that'd be my concern. It's a pastoral concern, and I think it's right for me to have it. And I would hope that we would all have that for each other. At the end of the day, my concern is that anything less than the gospel will become central to our moral and ethical interactions in an increasingly polarized world and in a polarized American church. So, get to the off-the-cuff, unscripted part of my sermon at the end. The reason that I shared that off-the-cuff and unscripted story about the young man that I met last Saturday, who, by the way, is bisexual, and he's more than a bisexual, he has a name. His name is Timmy. He's a human. Been made in the image of God. There were a few of you who came and asked who he was and asked what his name was. Thankful for that. I didn't say very well last week. If you would remember, I shared the story in tears in front of you, standing here. And part of my apology is, is that when I get emotional, I don't always say what I mean to say or want to say, and that's, that's part of me being human, with a name. I didn't say very well in those tears in front of you, as I was struggling with a lot of mixed emotions. One, that I didn't say last week, um, and you wouldn't have even caught because I didn't say it at all. I struggled with meaning it was nervous. My daughter was bringing him home to meet me from college. I prejudged him before I met him. He sat in my living room and he sang these lines to a worship song for me. He doesn't know me. He's saying his hand is on the sparrow comes from a passage about anxiety. If you know me well, you know I struggle with fear. I can't tell you how the Spirit moved in those moments for me. I remembered um, throughout this last weekend, and I think even over that weekend, that as a leader goes, so go those who follow him. My concern for us as a church, this is the second concern. First concern was for me, my own heart, because I must start there. Second concern was for us as a church. Um, if I wrestle with that kind of sinfulness in this regard, maybe you do too. I don't want to assume too much, so I'll drop this here. Maybe you don't. If you don't, you don't. Good for you. I do. Maybe you do too. And if you do too, then this was a poor attempt, I would say, at a call to repentance for us as a church. So maybe the story wasn't for you and the Spirit didn't convict you of anything. That's between you and the Lord. For me, my concern for myself, for us, stands, and I believe it's biblically founded.
the concern that I have is spirit-led. The cool thing coming out of that last week is that the Spirit, I believe, still uses preaching even in its poorest delivery. Last week's sermon to me seemed to do exactly what I believe the Spirit impressed on me. It appears that he protected us by and large from any lasting hurt or division that my delivery could have caused. In other words, I, I sense the confirmation in my spirit. The spirit was and is leading, and that we're hearing it. Spoke with numerous people last week who shared how they have wrestled with being in a relationship with someone in the LGBTQ community. Questions. How? How do we do this? How do we how do we how do we stand in this? How do we how do we have the relationship? Multiple conversations almost every day this last week. I think I don't think that's an over-exaggeration. Very beautiful in many ways. Very beautiful conversations in many ways. Talk to people who really desired to love their friends while speaking the truth of the gospel in winsome ways that don't ostracize people, but also don't um, move on the clear words of scripture and also not wanting to ostracize people with different values or beliefs so i i end this part by just saying i'm really proud to be one of your pastors i know i scratched an itch inside of us that could have quickly become a festering wound so my prayer throughout this week is that in this introduction kind of a sandwich between 22 and 23 it would clear your mind and clear your heart from anything that i might have done poorly and then it would allow you to hear from God's word as I preach moving forward to chapter 23. The prayers of the Spirit of the living God would come and continue to lead us to the foot of the bloody cross, the doorway of an empty tomb, as we again remember and cling to the promised hope of heaven. So the question becomes, what's happening in the text, right? The next question you ask Typically, when we get into Bible interpretation, we come to the text with all sorts of other questions first. That should be one of the questions at the top of the list. What's happening in this text? What's happening in Joshua 23? In this chapter, um, what happens is Joshua preaches the second of three farewell sermons to Israel. So take that in for a second so you understand the context. Joshua preaches the second of three farewell, goodbye, sayonara, see you later, I'm out of here sermons. Just reviewed um, his sermon from Joshua 22 that nearly resulted in an all-out war. The second one is a series of reminders and promises and conditions and commands and warnings. Let's say it one more time. Reminders and promises and conditions and commands and warnings. That's what's happening in this second sermon from Joshua. First thing, verses 1-4, through four, you see a reminder. Joshua is nearing the end of his life. He gathers all of Israel and reminds them that they have witnessed the Lord's power at work as he has fought on their behalf against their enemies. All the land that they now live in is theirs because the Lord has defeated their enemies right in front of their eyes. 
And in case there's any question in Israel's mind, Joshua reminds them that even the enemy nations that remain among them are destined for destruction as well. So what we have here in these first four verses is a reminder of God's power. Second thing we see is a promise in verse 5. Joshua tells Israel the Lord will push their enemies back. He will drive them out of sight. Israel will take possession of their enemy's land as well. In other words, there's still enemies in the camp. There's still enemies in the camp because Israel had previously failed to drive them out. But God promises to drive them out soon. Parenthetical note. Promises to drive them out soon, but as we'll see here in a moment, the promise has conditions. Third thing you see is you see a conditional command in verses 6 through 8. A conditional command. In these verses, 6 through 8, we see this conditional command to the previous promise, and it begins with the word, therefore. Whenever we see the word, therefore, we're to ask, somebody say it with me, what's the therefore, therefore? Yes, you guys are awesome. A's and stars on your charts in heaven. Self-justification and self-righteousness all day long. Thank you for letting me have that moment. Almost as good as when the Huskers get a touchdown. Agreed. It's been a while. And the answer is that the therefore is therefore remembering the previous promise that God will drive out the remaining nations. This is to be the motivation for the obedience commanded. God commands Israel through the preaching of Joshua to be strong and obedient to the Lord, focused on God's commands, separated from the idols of the world as they hold fast to their Father in heaven. It's a conditional command. Verses 9 through 10. And you have a second reminder. Just in case Israel begins to balk at these commands. Just in, just in case they decide to dig their heels in. Like, we're all so good at doing, right? God says, go this way. No! No matter how long we walk with Jesus. Just in case Israel begins to balk at these commands, God again through Joshua's preaching reminds them he reminds them of the powerful work that God has done on their behalf. He reminds them once again that the Lord has driven out very great and strong enemies. In these verses, 9 through 10, he reminds them that no human is be able to stand against them to this day. With the Lord's power, members of Israel have become superhuman to the extent that one ordinary man with the extraordinary strength of the Lord could stand against and defeat a thousand enemies. Could be a connection to Joshua himself. Could be, his, could be Caleb. Could be a connection there. I think it also points forward. One man 
extraordinarily defeated what appeared to be impossible to defeat. Two pieces of wood, some nails, horrific suffering. What, what a powerful reminder of what happens when we walk in the strength of the Lord here. Next thing we see is another command and a warning in verses 11 through 13. Right, Because God has revealed His power so extraordinarily, Joshua can command Israel to pay close attention to their careful love of the Lord. If they do not continue to love the Lord, then the consequences are going to be severe. I always say that I find it interesting how we as Christians find it so easy to read like the first couple of books of the Bible and then jump all the way ahead to um, you know, Matthew and miss 1,400 years of Israel. And it's actually tough to read. Maybe that's why we miss it. Numerous Christians say, I really don't like the Old Testament. We've got famous preachers like Andy Stanley. I have no problems naming him because he says we should unhitch from the Old Testament. It's nothing but a collection of poems. Oh, I think I'll quit listening to you now. (laughs) Because God has revealed His power so extraordinarily, Joshua can command Israel to pay close attention to their careful love of the Lord. If they do not continue to love the Lord, the consequences are going to be severe. If Israel turns away from God and clings to the ways of the nations among them, through intermarriage and close association, then the Lord is going to inflict severe discipline on them. Now, I want to make a note here that I think is really important from an interpretive standpoint. We should not interpret this passage as applying to interracial marriage. This is a black eye on the church. Not so much in our day, but in the past. The church was largely quiet about it. The church did this horrifyingly for years. God's issue here is not interracial marriage. It's a sinful, synchronizing, and compromising with the world's paradigms and systems that are at stake here. If Israel does not heed this command and warning, then God is going to no longer protect Israel from her enemies, and he's no longer going to defeat her enemies. Instead, God's going to allow Israel's enemies to be a deadly trap, according to verses 11 through 13, a pain in the side, a blinding thorn in their eyes until they are utterly destroyed from the land that God has given to them sad story of Israel's rejection of God, as I said earlier, over the next 1,400 years or so until the time of Christ, is an absolutely devastating story. It does shed some light on why the Pharisee would sit there while the woman sheds tears on Jesus' feet. In his mind, he believes he's upholding a level of holiness and commitment to God's Word. I've just spanned 1,400 years in a short statement. 
It's, it's, it's part of the understanding of why this happens, why the Jews rejected Jesus. But on the outside, they look so good. And Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. It's been a burden for me since about the middle of Joshua as I begin to understand more clearly as I did a deep study of this. The warning that this book becomes for Christians today. Final thing that we have in the text is a summary of the sermon. It's interesting. I, it's just a summary of the sermon, which you know, most decent sermons are going to have a summary, kind of a recap, right? I like what we did a little bit earlier. It was a recap, summary of last week. That's kind of what we have here in the verses 14 through 16. The reminders, the promises, the conditions, the commands, the warnings of Joshua's sermon up until this point, they've been both beautiful on one side, sobering on the other, and I cannot express the gravity of the situation enough. Apparently, neither could the Lord. So through Joshua, he repeats a summary of what basically some of the highlights of that he's already said. Think of it again like the concluding summary to a sermon. Verse 14, Joshua reminds Israel, reminds them, Reminds them he's about to die after years of hard labor and leading the nation. After next week, Joshua is gone. Before he goes, he reminds Israel that way down inside of the deepest parts of their hearts and their souls, they know that God's word has been faithful and true. His promises have never failed. Equally as faithful as the promises of prosperity, so too are the warnings of rebellion and idolatry. We like to skip those, or at least just think that for some reason, those warnings applied to Israel. Not really to Because we've, we don't really need to abide by the Old Testament. We abide by the New Testament. It's called heresy. Equally as faithful as the promises of prosperity, so too are the warnings of rebellion and idolatry. Joshua concludes with a very heavy warning that if Israel rebels against the Lord, he will bring evil things against them. It's interesting to hear this good and loving God say, I'm going to bring evil things against you if you reject me. That's God's heavy word. And he's not speaking it to outsiders. He's speaking it to insiders. If they decide to rebel against their relationship with God, turn to serving other gods, then God's righteous anger will be kindled like a raging fire and Israel will perish. That's Joshua's summary conclusion. It's a heavy way to end a sermon, don't you think? <clears throat> so why does this matter to us? Next logical question. We really only deal with two questions every sermon. <clears throat> What's happening? Why does it matter? Obviously, we nuance that out. How are we supposed to apply these reminders, these promises, these conditions, these commands, these warnings? 
Joshua's second farewell sermon for our lives today. As I've said, we're living roughly 3,400 years after the events of this sermon, give or take a few years, depending on your opinion or whether you're a, you know, late earth, early earth, whatever. Whether it was a literal seven days, right? Were they literal seven-day periods or 24-hour periods or were they day ages in the creation? Whatever. It's been a long time. Somebody say it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Many ways, uh, things are very different for us today. Somebody say, I think I agree with that. <coughs> I'm good. See, I didn't put you on the hook for saying that you do, but you think you do, so in case you decide you don't, then we'll be okay. Like us, Israel was a nation living in a certain geographical location of the world. Unlike us, Israel's geographical location was the direct result of a covenant relationship with the Lord. As a nation, we are a democracy or a constitutional republic, depending on who you're talking to, of the people, by the people, for the people. Israel, on the other hand, was a theocracy under the rule of God. Israel rode camels and donkeys. We drive cars and flying airplanes. So in some ways, we're the same. In other ways, we're very different. Why does this text matter to us? How do we apply a sermon that was preached to Israel some 3,000 years ago, depending upon your view of Genesis? How do we apply it to us today? At the end of the day, I think we, just like Israel, need reminders. We need promises. We need conditions. We need commands. We need warnings. So, number one, we need reminders. I find it really easy to forget all the ways that God has been faithful when I come face to face with temptation and hardship. Anybody there with me? Good. <laughs> I need to be reminded of God's faithful power. And here's the thing. There are many ways that God's power has been revealed in my life, but absolutely nothing compares to the power of the cross and the empty tomb. Nothing. The cross reminds me of the salvation that I have in Christ from my sin and my rebellion. It reminds me of the adoption that I have in Christ. It reminds me of the sonship that I have that can never be revoked. The cross reminds me of that. My empty tomb reminds me that death is not my Final destination. Oh, question is, how do you remind yourself of the power of the cross and the empty tomb and the hope of heaven? How do you do that? Do you do that? When was the last time you did that? What did it look like? How did the conversation between you and Jesus go? What did he say to you? Number two, we need promises. Way too easy for me to lose heart in the face of persecution and human suffering. Let me say that again. It's way too easy for me to lose heart in the face of persecution and human suffering. Anybody else agree with me on that? Okay. All right. I need to hear God's promises if I'm going to stay the course. If my obedience is the only way that I'm going to stay the course... 
I'm going to drive off the course. Follow me? If my obedience is the way that I continue on the course, following Jesus, I'm going to fall off the course. I need to not lose heart. I need promises. Again, the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus, that's where all of the promises of the Scriptures have their ultimate fulfillment. Because of the cross of Christ, I have been promised membership in an eternal family with an eternal Father. He will never shame me, never criticize me, never guilt trip me, never mischaracterize me, never put words in my mouth that never came out of my mouth, and He will certainly never reject me. Love my Father in heaven, don't you? Father, the weight's at the end of the driveway for you. Empty tomb is my promise of everlasting acceptance and friendship with God. Outside of that, I need nothing else. I can say that because I know it in my head that I don't need anything else outside of the cross and empty tomb. But the connection from there to here is a really interesting journey. Isn't it? Heard some say that the direct pathway from knowing things in your head to embracing them in your heart is a serious acknowledgement of my sin. Otherwise, why would I need him? An empty tomb is my promise of everlasting acceptance and friendship with God. But how has the promise of the cross, the promise of the empty tomb, the promise of the hope of heaven encouraged and challenged you lately? What's that look like for you? (laughs) Number three, we need conditions. We need conditions. Now, I can get lazy in my relationship with the Lord. Anybody else there with me on that? Anybody want to join me in that club? Okay, all right, good. Thank you. I can get lazy in my relationship with the Lord. I can stand there in absolute bewilderment when God feels distant from me. I need to understand that while God's love is unconditional, somebody say unconditional, so I'm assured that you heard that. God's love is unconditional. But the health of my relationship with Him, conditional. Follow me? His love is unconditional. But the health of my relationship with my loving, unconditionally loving Father, that is conditional upon my obedience. See, obedience is a very tricky topic because it can quickly and very invisibly turn into self-justification because I feel guilty about something which many of you, some of you at least, probably felt last week when I shared that story at the end. Not, not intentional on my part. Trust me, I, that was a, I, I confessed that earlier. I biffed it. Guilt is typically what drives us towards self-justification and self-righteousness. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd stand beside that. I'm happy to chop that up with you if we disagree. Moralism, um, which is doing right because it's right, 
And then legalism, which is doing right to justify myself or to be accepted. Listen to me. These two things, moralism and legalism, they are always following the topic of obedience around like vicious wolves. They're invisible though. Hard for us to see. The antidote, I believe, to the sickness of moralism and legalism in my obedience is the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. See, because of Christ's obedience at the cross, I can now ask him for the strength and for the right motivation. Come and bring honor to him with my obedience. The empty tomb gives me hope in the suffering of my obedience because in that empty tomb, I see the hope of heaven. The gospel is the condition that makes my love for the Lord genuine. (coughs) The gospel is the condition that makes my love for the Lord genuine. Number four, we need commands. If there were no restrictions in my life, anybody else ever lived their life completely unrestricted? Just like melted your flipping life down. I have. Have. And maybe you have too. You just didn't do it the same way that I did. Oh. All sin in the eyes of the Lord. Not one that's worse than the other. I think the only ones that make some worse than the other are us, right? Either A, look at my sin, how bad it was. Check out my story. Look so small and stupid. Or, I can't believe that person sins that way. It just makes my stomach turn. Right? When I say that, I'm not saying that about you. You might do that, but I'm saying that about me for sure. And in my experience with friends, that's been our confession to each other. So if there were no restrictions in my life, I would live in a reckless pursuit of satisfying every desire and placating every feeling I have. So I need God's commands to be the guardrails of my life. Once again, Jesus said that all of God's commands hang on Him and can be summed up in one word. That word is what? Love. We as Christians, I'll just forget about the culture outside of Christianity. We as Christians love to redefine the word love too. And here's the thing. When I see my Savior hanging on that cross, I see the ultimate fulfillment of what love looks like. And then when I survey the empty tomb, I see what the victory of obedience looks like in love. Or has the cross and the empty tomb and the hope of heaven transformed your understanding of God's commands lately? Because when you move away from commands, the next thing you need is what? A warning. Even in my pursuit of living a life that honors God, I still need warning signs to keep me between the guardrails. If I ignore the warning signs that I may soon drive my life straight off a cliff, I need God's gentle and caring warnings to do what? To keep me safe. 
In the Christian life, there's a difference between safety and comfortability. Picture of Aslan, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. A little girl and all of her enemies are coming against her. He sure ain't safe, but he's good. I love that movie. I love that scene. The warnings of the cross and the empty tomb are vast. God gave His only Son to die in my place. My salvation came at a higher cost than I can possibly fathom. If I reject the cross of Christ, let me just say, we always think of the rejection of the cross of Christ as those other bad people who reject the cross of Christ. And it's harder for us to think about the underhanded ways that we reject the cross of Christ. And I don't have time to go into it. Just leave that there for you to think about if the Holy Spirit says you should. If I reject the cross of Christ, I'm headed for a certain destruction and I will forfeit the eternal victory of the empty tomb. So the question is, have you stopped and thought about the horror of the cross of Christ as a warning to you? How has the truth of the empty tomb and the hope of heaven warned you away from continuing in sin lately? I'm at 50 minutes on my clock minus the two minutes that we spent on the extravaganza. So with your permission, I'd like to continue through the conclusion without cutting anything. I'd like to say that while Israel was looking forward through this lens of reminders and promises and conditions and commands and warnings to the coming Messiah, we have a very unique privilege that we should not take for granted. We, we have a blessing of looking back on the history of Israel and her failure to listen to Joshua's farewell sermons. There's three of them over the course of time that we have recorded. We can also look back and see the redemptive storyline of the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus as our filter for these, which they did not have. We have a privilege. So think about this as you look back. Think about all the places in your life that feel the most important to you right now. The things that cause you the most anxiety, that make you happy, that have caused you the deepest grief, the deepest shame, or the deepest guilt. You might feel these things in different areas, different kingdoms that I mentioned last week, marriage, friendship. National crisis, the coronavirus. I would be remiss if I didn't bring that up, wouldn't I? Probably. Causes me fear. <coughs> Global concern, financial burden, vocational dream, addiction, festering wound, physical limitation. The list could go on and on. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. I don't. Know what it is that screams for your attention daily. Not sure what it is that promises you the freedom and the satisfaction that your heart longs for. 
I will trust the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. I do know this. I do know that wherever anxiety or happiness or grief or shame or guilt or untold amounts of other emotions exist, there are sure to be latent idolatrous desires underneath of all that need to be dealt with. I can't see your heart. Only the Lord can see the heart. Well, I always love it when somebody tells me, I know why you did what you did. Oh, you do, do you? Oh, your, your name is God. Okay. We often uh, think as idolatry as something that unbelievers are trapped in because they don't know the Lord. The reality is that there are warnings all over the scriptures in regards to idolatry in God's people. You don't start struggling with idolatry just because you became a Christian. Idolatry is uh, simply, break it down simply, and we could spend a long time on idolatry, okay? But idolatry is just kind of simply good desires gone bad. That's a real layman's way of saying it, and that's really boiled down. There's a lot more to this. So you have to forgive me for the quick summary here, okay? Simply good desires gone bad. Uh, and, and here's the thing. We're typically pretty blind to them. And we need the Spirit of the living God to come and speak into our places of brokenness and shame and guilt and longing. A friend of mine said to me this week, as I was chopping some things up with him, talking through some things, he's my coach and one of my mentors. And he just said, Joe... You need to remember, um, all of us have a tendency to hear things through a filter. And it's usually a filter of pain. Attached to that, you got guilt, you got shame, you got fear, all this other stuff. Usually pain. I don't know what this looks like for you. Maybe you have no pain. I would like to make one suggestion to you, though, in the midst of all this. You're going you're to feel here in a moment like I'm jolting us off of one railroad track to the other. Um, but I want to make a really specific application, and, I, and I'm going to show you why I think it's important. Um, I'm almost done. So I don't know what this all looks like for you when it comes to all the, the idolatry stuff, but if I could just, like, make it one practical. Here's a way that I think Christians primarily really miss it in terms of idolatry and again this ain't you it ain't you if it is you might want to listen right here it is one suggestion three words i'm sorry four words i can't count my own manuscript oh practice a weekly sabbath four words practice a weekly sabbath now This is a very appropriate application from this text. You might say, why? Where do you see that in the text? Well, here's where I see it. Joshua challenges Israel to obey God's law in verse 6, doesn't he? That would include the first Ten Commandments. Agreed? So see, this is the rule of context, context, context when you interpret the Scriptures. There's a lot more I could say here, because you could jump to the New Testament. And talk about what it actually looks like to observe the Sabbath, and then talk about what Jesus says about that. I'm just going to stick with where I'm at with it so we don't take more time. Let the Holy Spirit tell you whether this is true or not. I think the simple truth is that it is a sin not to practice a weekly Sabbath. But here's the thing I'm not telling you what day to practice it on, I'm not telling you exactly how to do it. The Bible's got some clear things there, and I'd love to sit down with you and talk with you some more about what I think it should look like. Tell you how I practice it. 
And you don't have to do it just like me. Okay? Covering the bases. Okay. I do believe it's a sin not to practice a weekly Sabbath, but here's the thing. I do believe this. I believe it's the sin that we Christians kind of love to wink at. Right? We kind of like to wink at that. We like to gloss it over. We like to compromise on that one. Although we would all, if you have kids, we would all teach our kids compromise is bad. And we do that while we attack the sins of others that appear bigger than that sin. It's not, does that make you feel guilty when you hear all this? If you're, I mean, when I hear what I'm saying, I'm like, man, I'm guilty. And it doesn't feel good. Okay? And uh, there is a right kind of guilt that, that actually I think is conviction. Now, I can't convict you, only the Holy Spirit can do that. Um, but I can speak truthfully about the sin that I think a lot of us probably struggle with. And if you don't, once again, you don't. So I think if there's one idolatrous tendency, um, say it this way, one worldly God that we bow down to, that Joshua warned Israel against, we tend to think that rejecting the weekly Sabbath is near the top of the list. Weekly Sabbath, honestly, guys, man, it's, it's refreshing, it's freeing. If I could take more time and cast a grand picture for you of what it's like, what my experience of Sabbath has been like, rest, in the presence of a father who never forsakes you. Shelter from the raging world around me. Complete acceptance, emotional healing. It happen overnight. Every time I Sabbath, I sense as though I've been in the presence of my father who loves me. And I don't know how else to say it other than to say that there's, there's nothing that competes with that. And I don't know why I would ever want to trade that aspect of my relationship with my father for some cheap substitute of overworking and staying overly busy in the name of all the good things I could be doing. But I've done it. friend of mine that I spoke to this week, he said, you know, Joe, you should ask the well. Ask the well. I'm not commanding you, but I'm asking you. Turn off your news feeds. Turn off your social media for 24 hours every week. It's kind of the one major thing I'm probably going to ask you to do. And it's up to you whether you think the Holy Spirit is telling you to do it or not. So you got freedom there. Turn off your news feeds and your social media, your cell phones. Get unplugged completely for a 24-hour period every week and devote yourself to being in the presence of the Lord throughout that period. Obviously, you can't do a full 24 hours unless you're single and live on top of a post, right? Which, if you want to go do that, I might come with you. <coughs> Micah, you and I can go climb trees in the middle of storms. <laughs> the inside joke, sorry. <laughs> Ask him about that. It's a good story. It's a really good story. Turn off your news feed. Turn off your social media for 24 hours every week and devote yourself to being in the presence of the Lord as much as you can during that 24-hour period and just see what the Lord might do to enable you and empower you to be in His presence. And then see what kind of fruit grows out of that. See what kind of healing you begin to walk in. 
See what kind of unity you begin to walk in. See, see what happens when you go back and turn your news feeds back on the next day, how much more clearly you see. As I said, not bragging. I ain't been on social media since before Thanksgiving. I had the opportunity to look at some social media last night for the first time, and I was like, holy smokes. It's a war out there. I'm just glad I haven't had to be part of it. There are probably untold other ways that you may ignore God's reminders, God's promises, God's conditions, God's commands, God's warnings. I am going on an hour. This is ridiculous. I'm sorry, folks. It's an hour and three minutes. I'll leave that conversation for you uh, to the Spirit of God to hash out between the two of you, okay? Um, So if some of this isn't hitting all eight cylinders for you, go talk to Jesus, right? If you're a Christian, you got his Spirit and he'll speak to you. Through his word. I'm going to close with what I heard the Spirit say to me this week as I prepared the sermon and then I'm done. Here's what I think the Spirit said to me. Powerful. He says, you've witnessed my power in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus in your life. I will continue to fight on your behalf against your enemies. So you need to be strong. You need to be obedient. You need to be focused on my word. You need to be separated from the ways of the world. You need to not compromise. Hold fast to your Father. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. I will never accuse you. I will never shame you. I will never guilt you. I will never hurt you. I have fought for you, and I have given my spirit to you so that you may be strengthened in your moments of greatest warfare. So continue loving me, Joe, as I have steadfastly loved you from before the foundations of the earth. Don't turn from me. Don't grab hold of any worldly systems or paradigms of living this thing out. Those worldly systems that promise you satisfaction and justification and safety and all sorts of other things. The consequences for turning from me will be very painful. My word, my promises are faithful and true. And outside of the gospel, you find no hope but in the cross and the empty tomb. There is much joy and hope in the promise of heaven. And I'm not sure what the Spirit may be speaking to you from the text that we've just studied, but I pray that you will give him the freedom to examine your heart through Joshua's second farewell sermon. we got one left. Only one. And I pray that he would speak to you through these reminders, these promises, these conditions, these commands, these warnings, and that through them he will lead you to the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb, help you to hold fast to the hope of heaven. Why? Because it's your true promised land. You're an alien here. This place is not our home. Heaven is. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. Pray, God, that your spirit would do the work that you desire to do. Trust you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska, that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.